0: This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today we're joined by our President and Chief Operating Officer, Gary Cohn, to discuss key issues affecting financial markets and the current macro environment. We'll also talk a bit about his career and what he's learned during his 25 years, it's official. 25 years at Goldman Sachs. Gary, welcome to the program.
1: Jake, thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: Gary, we'll get to interest rates and hot topics in the markets in a second. But first, we've recently seen pretty dramatic improvement in the labor market. Yet we hear of jobs going unfilled, and there are still a lot of people looking for work. What do you think is at play here between this mismatch between people looking for jobs and jobs that we can't fill? And how should we be thinking about addressing that gap?
1: Jake, that's a great place to start. We have a unique position in this country where there are many, many job openings and many, many unemployed people. And you say, how could that be so? Well, it's so because the skill sets that are needed for the job openings aren't the skill sets that the working force or labor force has today. And many of those skill sets are not skill sets that you need to go to college to have. Some of them are programming jobs. Some of them are service jobs where you can go into a vocational education, a trade education, a service education, and really come out with a proficiency in something that allows you to thrive and have a great career and have a great lifestyle, which is the lifestyle I grew up in. My grandfather and father and uncle together built a very nice business with having a trade background and a trade education. But my grandfather and my father It was their lifelong goal to make sure that the next generation of our family got an education. And I know that it was a motivating factor to them every day of their life. And in the family I came from, it was always believed, and I do believe this today, that education is the key to success. Now, when I say that, and I have this discussion with my father today, it's not just college education or graduate school education. It's education in a skill set. What we need to do in this country is we need to make sure that our labor force has a skill
0: set and a marketable skill set. So let's step back and talk a little bit just about the markets and the period we find ourselves in. One way or another, we're going to be seeing higher interest rates at some point here in the U.S. and perhaps in Europe at some point as well. QE cannot go on indefinitely. Do you think we're ready? Do you think everyone's been talking about it forever, but do you think markets have fully priced in the risks?
1: We're probably less ready than people think. It always is uniquely interesting how it comes as a surprise to everyone when something happens that we've been talking about for a long period of time. So, you know- You were talking
0: about two years ago.
1: Right, we talked about quantitative easing for a year before it happened. We talked about quantitative easing in Europe for many, many, many months before it happened. So the reality of something happening it's always different than the dialogue of it's obviously going to happen and when it does happen it's usually not the first derivative event that people are caught off guard by they're caught off guard by the second third and fourth derivative events it's like oh yeah when interest rates go up that happens oh yeah when that happens this happens and people tend not to think in an elongated fashion of all of the effects of a change in monetary policy. Although we've been debating it now for years on when interest rates are gonna change, it won't at all be surprising to me if there are some interesting market reactions
0: based on official change in rate policy by the Fed. So you've been talking about it, you've been thinking about it. What do you tell clients when they say, look, it's gonna happen, how should I get ready?
1: Some of our clients should and have taken advantage of lower interest rates. So if you wanna take advantage of the lower cost scenario, take advantage of it now. And most of our corporate clients, almost all of them have done that. You know, it was very cheap in the United States. Then recently, the beginning of this year, it got very cheap in Europe to borrow money. Now you know, rates are starting to back up a little bit everywhere. So to the extent you were a corporate issuer, you know, the, the view was to take advantage while the opportunity was there. On the flip side, you know, we've got a lot of people that we manage their money for that have to worry about their asset liability mix. If you're in the insurance business or you're in the pension business, higher rates are good for you. So there's a different answer for almost everyone dependent upon their circumstances.
0: You wrote an op-ed recently about the role of central clearing in today's markets. A little bit obscure of an issue, um, but talk a little bit about why it's so important, why we should be discussing that, And, you know, for listeners who aren't super familiar with clearing, what is it and what's it supposed to do? How is it supposed to function?
1: So, Jake, remember, all these issues are obscure until they're not. And one of the things we learn about financial markets is things that we never thought matter, matter a lot when something bad happens. And so, you know, the one thing that we always talk about in the financial services industry is trying to look around corners and understand what could happen and what could negatively impact our industry and our business. And clearing is one of those objects that I would say has a potential. So let me back up for a second and explain clearing. Clearing was one of the great inventions of the financial services industry, it really was. And why it was a great invention when it was first used, it was used to allow dealers and clients to consolidate their trades into a central facility to allow those trades to net. To do that efficiently, clearinghouses take in what's called initial margin. So both sides of the transaction put in an initial margin, like an insurance policy that protects the other side against an initial market move. It's a great invention. It really has helped financial markets create transparency. It's allowed them to grow. It's allowed people to minimize credit exposure, counterpart exposure, all the things that we do want to mitigate as a whole. So the new regulation says that everything that can be cleared must be cleared. The real question is just because it can be cleared, should it be cleared? And the reason I say that is the premise of a clearinghouse is that if a clearing member defaults, meaning that one of the people that has trades in the clearinghouse can't come up with their money once there's a market move, what the clearinghouse does is it instantaneously liquidates, sells out all of their open positions, and then basically returns the excess initial margin to that clearing member, if there is an initial excess margin. If there's not initial excess margin, it assesses all of the other clearing members And so what the premise is based on is that everything in the clearinghouse will be easily liquidated in a time of market dislocation, high volatility, or stress. And historically, that was 100% correct. What I'm worried about is if we start clearing, which we have, less and less liquid instruments that are harder and harder to liquidate, and the amount of market dislocation that you'll need to liquidate those defaulting instruments increases the clearinghouse won't have enough initial margin or initial capital from the defaulting clearing member and therefore they will need to assess all of the other clearing members which in itself means that those clearing members have to put up capital which means that they may have to start liquidating their positions, so more, which f- makes more for it selling, yeah. quite systemic. Right, And the clearinghouse should never, ever be systemic. The clearinghouse socializes risk and therefore has to be the most liquid, highly secured place that we transact in.
0: So as the clearinghouses have grown, by design really, in the wake of financial regulation, and they've taken on some of the roles the banks used to play at some level, they become another potential source of instability. What should we do about it?
1: Your point is correct. So what happened prior to the financial crisis is all of the very fungible, highly transactionable instruments cleared, which was great. And then all of the non-highly transactional, non-highly fungible, non-heavily traded instruments They traded bilaterally, meaning a customer would call two or three banks, they would get the best price, and they would trade with that bank, and it would stay on the bank's books, and they would have a bilateral obligation with each other. And therefore, if there was a large market move, it was contained between that bank and that customer. It wasn't socialized in the clearinghouse. So what should we do? Simply, we shouldn't clear everything just because we can we should level the playing field for what does get cleared. So you should have to have a certain amount of daily trading volume in any security that gets cleared. That's the first thing. You should have some standardization of what that instrument looks like. So many, many, many market makers will and can make a price in case there is a time to liquidate it. Make sure that our governance in the clearing of the risk committees And the margin committees is strong remember clearinghouses many of them are owned as public institutions so they're competing with each other for business and that's not a bad thing i like the fact that they're competing with each other but i don't want the near-term profit motivation to trump the long-term financial stability of a clearinghouse we should make sure that clearinghouses are collecting enough initial margin
0: so if you're collecting higher margins for those by definition you're going to see a little less liquidity in those products too of
1: course you're going to see less liquidity but we're already seeing less liquidity which is another reason why the clearinghouse concerns me you know many people have already written and i completely agree that there has been a decline in liquidity in the markets and one of the basic premises of the clearinghouse is it will be able to liquidate defaulting clearing members quickly and efficiently without market dislocation.
0: A lot of people are trying to sort out how much of the loss of liquidity, particularly in fixed income markets, is a function of the electronification of that market, increasing high-frequency trading in those markets, and how much is a product of regulation. How do you see those two factors and the confluence of those factors contributing to the drops we've seen in liquidity?
1: I think it's much more of the latter. I think it's much more a function of the regulatory world. It's not a single factor in the regulatory world. It's the cumulative effect of a variety of different regulations that has had a impact on the liquidity of all markets, including the fixed income market. One has been the combination of Volcker and Dodd-Frank where the broker-dealer community no longer has the liberty to commit their own capital to stabilize markets. Historically, one of the most important roles of a broker-dealer was to provide capital and to stabilize markets when they got out of line. Meaning that when there were too many buyers, the broker-dealers would step in and sell product. Too many sellers, the broker-dealer would step in and buy the product. They would allow the market to stabilize, whether it's stabilized over 30 seconds or 30 days, they would use their balance sheet, and they would allow the market to return back to equilibrium prices. In today's regulatory environment, you're not allowed to do that. That ability has been taken away from the broker-dealer community. That's number one. Number two, which is equally as important, if not greater importance, is All of the financial institutions today have to live by a very elaborate set of regulatory ratios. By creating a ratio means that you're dividing one number by another. The number that's in the denominator is always the balance sheet. So the bigger your balance sheet gets, the worse your ratio gets, meaning that if I wanted to, or any other bank wanted to step into a market and create liquidity by buying a security or selling a security, it would make my balance sheet bigger. So every time I would buy that security to dampen volatility or create liquidity for the end user, my balance sheet would have to grow, meaning that my ratios would have to shrink. So I myself, or we as a broker dealer, cannot step in and buy and sell because our balance sheet would grow. The other piece of that, which is equally as important, is historically we funded other clients who would step in and dampen market volatility. So if you're an investment advisor or you're a fund and you said, look, I think this market is out of line, I want to step in and buy these securities, I'm willing to put up 20% of the capital, or 30% of the capital, you lend me the other 70 or 80%, we would have historically done that because you're putting up 20 or 30% of the first loss. We think it's a relatively good value. We think you're gonna trade out of it relatively quickly. But again, if you step in and I lend you the 70
0: or 80%, my balance sheet grows again.
1: So when my balance sheet grows, my liquidity leverage ratio goes down, my net stable funding ratio goes down. And these are ratios that are highly watched by the regulatory community. And we have no flexibility on these ratios. So to the extent that we want to bring some normalized liquidity back to the market, we have to give the broker-dealer community some more authority to normalize liquidity in markets
0: when markets get out of control. You uh, spend a lot of time in the Valley, Silicon Valley, that is. Yes. You are out there recently. And you're close to a lot of the startup CEOs. What do you tell them with the valuations we're seeing today? And what kind of advice are you giving to companies that are looking to go public or thinking of staying private?
1: Again, there's not a universal bit of advice for any of the companies in the Valley. The vast majority of the companies out there are still very comfortable being private companies. There is not a huge impetus to go public right now. That will change. This is all part of the cycle. This in some respects has to do with the very low interest rates. When you're forced to buy 10-year government bonds were at you know one and three quarters percent, now they're you know 2.3, 2.4%, and you're an investor looking for long-term returns, you know, when you think the opportunity cost to invest in a startup versus two, two and a half percent not that huge, there's an enormous amount of money available in the Valley right now. So we've been in a period of time where the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley have been able to raise capital you know, somewhat easily if they've got a great business model, they're executing and their strategy is good. So you know, in the last year or two, most of the entrepreneurs we've been talking to, it, it has been about their equity capital, their balance sheet, you know, how much capital do you want to raise? The ability to raise capital will not always be this easy. This will come to an end as risk-free rates rise. The alternatives for investors will, will go a different direction. You may not always have the access to capital. So you know, let's let's figure out what your capital needs are for the next two years, and figure out how you can and should pre-fund them now. So you know, a lot of the companies we've talked to have or are raising capital right now, which we think is very prudent for them. Some of them are even figuring out how to approach the debt markets. Some of them have gotten big enough as private companies they can actually go out and raise debt, whether it be private placement debt or public debt. Should they be doing that with interest rates at these levels? We think some of them should be doing that with interest rates at these levels, and. And, you know, we're explaining to them that this is a more opportune time to do that. Other companies that are farther down the path that may be thinking of an IPO, you know, maybe not this year, but next year or the year after, you start having conversations with them about what it is to be a public company. What you should start doing now as a private company to get yourself ready to be a public company. Something as simple as creating quarters for yourself create a closing process where you close your books for the three months, create a revenue statement, create an earnings statement, create a mock earning release, you know, and you'll get in the practice and it will teach you a lot about what it's going to be a public company. So, you know, if you're a company that's talking about going public in 2016, 2017, we're going to talk to you about quarterizing your company and thinking about the disclosures and writing the reports because, it it will help you think better about managing your company as a public company.
0: So these private companies that are thinking about going public, they're hot places for recent college graduates to work. We here at Goldman continue to seek out the best and brightest too. You've got three college-age daughters of your own. What kind of advice do you give people that no matter where they end up, at a hot tech startup, at a financial institution, what should they be thinking about as they enter the workforce and their careers?
1: So the first thing I would tell them is it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard work. The one thing you realize if you're going to be successful, no matter where you grew up, no matter what your educational level is, A, you can succeed. But B, the only way you're going to succeed is by outworking everyone else. And I tell that to my kids. I mean, I look at some of the new entrepreneurs that I'm lucky enough to come in contact with in my job. And you look at these guys and these women that are starting companies. They're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're not just coming up with a great idea and saying, hey, we should start XYZ company or create XYZ service, and it's just happening. It's happening because A, they have a great idea, but B, they're willing to outwork Everyone else around them. And it really is, it's exciting to watch them. It's very contagious.
0: So, Gary, for young people interested in a career on Wall Street, what are some of the skills and qualities you're looking for? What should they be thinking about as they um, contemplate a career in financial services?
1: We are a huge recruiter of young people today. Young people are the core of what we are at Goldman Sachs. You know, we're always looking for great people. We're looking for talented kids. We're looking for kids with diverse background. The first thing I would say that we're looking for is someone with a passion, someone with a passion to be on Wall Street, someone who wants to work hard, someone who wants to make a difference, someone who wants to be in an organization that's going to be involved with the shaping of global economies. We're at the root of a lot of the most interesting transactions that are really aimed at creating job expansion and creating economic growth around the world. When you're financing countries, or you're financing companies, or merging companies together, or helping new entrepreneurs create product, that's where we play our strongest role. So when we're hiring, we want people that want to throw themselves into the middle of that opportunity and really make a difference in the world.
0: So you just marked the 25th year at Goldman. Did you ever think you'd be here this long? And what are some highs or lows? Anything you want to share?
1: I never would have thought I would have been here 25 years. It would have probably been the farthest thing from my mind when I joined the firm. The first year I was at Goldman Sachs, I didn't think I would be here a year. (laughs) It was a tough learning experience. It takes a year to understand an organization. And it was a tough first year for me, very tough first year for me. And I think had you asked me six months into my first year at Goldman Sachs, you know, how long my career at Goldman Sachs would be, I would say about another 180 days. And I'll make it through a year and I'll move on to something else. But, you know, with perseverance and hard work, every day seemed to get a little bit better in the second six months. So that's one of the experiences that has stuck with me. And I try and remind myself of that all the time because we're bringing new people into the organization all the time and remembering how difficult it is to assimilate into an organization is something that's important for us to remember, to make it as easy as we possibly can to allow people in. The real memories I have so far, I'm not done with memories, <laughs> um, is the firm has just given me enormous opportunity to build businesses. Uh, when I look back at the 25 years, you know, the fact that I got to be involved with the creation of the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, you know, something that didn't exist when I came to Goldman Sachs. Got to be involved with the creation of the index um, on the analytic part, then got to be involved with the marketing of the index. Then I got to go manage the index from a risk management standpoint. Was really phenomenally interesting. That led me into building a base metals business at Goldman Sachs that we did not have because three or four of the underlying index components were base metals. Uh, which led me to you know, a six-year stint in London, building our base metals business, and then coming back and literally getting exposed to almost every business in the securities business, whether it be fixed income or the equities world. Just a phenomenally interesting experience to go through business by business by business, whether you know, you go from emerging market debt, which has its own unique set of characteristics, then you all of a sudden start working in the mortgage department, which is completely different. Then you go over and you start thinking about equities and you're thinking about dividends and all these different phenomena you get to learn about in your life. So it's been a great experience so far.
0: Gary, thank you very much. Thank you, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward and thanks for
2: listening. This podcast was recorded on June 17th, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.